Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Anthony Hackett and this is the Is That a Thing podcast, the podcast where we use the sharp knife of evidence to dissect dogma and controversies in emergency medicine and critical care. Although we are physicians, this podcast is not medical advice, but aims to discuss and make available the latest and hottest topics in academics in real time to help influence the best practice at the patient's bedside. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Anthony Hackett with the Is That a Thing podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Garrett Evans. Uh, Dr. Evans is going to talk to us today about IV size uh, and CT contrast. All right, Dr. Evans, tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about this topic and what got you into it. People get really nitpicky about where the IV is, what the size is, when you start talking about angiography studies. And that's where a lot of the, the headbutting comes in, where if the only IV access you have is in the hand, and it, even if it's a critical patient, you're still going to get some pushback about whether or not you actually want this scan or, well, you know, by the way, you know, this is in the hand and the, the power injectors that we use, it might extravasate. Are you okay with this risk? important for us to kind of say that it seems like this conversation is mostly about CT angiography of the head and neck and CTPE. Like those are the two big ones that the the bolus really matters that we order a lot, right? But I guess what I was confused about coming into this talk and that you really kind of helped me um, delineate in my head is like, really, what's the risk here? You know, we talk about extravasation, but like, can you quantify through the research that you've done like, what is the risk of extravasation based on catheter size and site? And then really what happens if, if it extravasates? I've never really seen anybody lose a limb from uh, contrast extravasation. So can you tell us what you found on that? Yeah, so the, luckily the, um, the risk is pretty low nowadays with, as we're getting into, as you guys have discussed on your prior podcast, with, as we've gotten more and more into the isoosmolar and um, hypoosmolar um, radio contrast agents that we use nowadays, the the risk of extravasation in and of itself is pretty low. And we'll get into what happens or the rates at which this happens with different IVs and different sites that they're put in. But historically, the risk was that if you put a you know 50 to 100 cc's of very hyperosmolar solution into a specific location, whether or not it's in the hand or the forearm or in the neck, as we're going to discuss then you're potentially going to be drawing a lot of solvent into that compartment based on the high osmolarity of all that iodine that you've just put into there if it extravasates. So the the risk historically used to be compartment syndromes and tissue destruction from the direct toxicity from the hyperosmolar agents. But nowadays it's the the risk is somewhat minimal. I mean it's not not negligible, but it's 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 such the point where you know you shouldn't be afraid of putting IVs in specific or specific spots just because you're well, I wouldn't want a compartment syndrome to happen in the hand, so I'm, I don't want to use this scan. Um, and I always used to be confused by that because every time a patient would come back from radiology, they would they would kind of like be rushing over and say, "Oh, just so you know, you know, there was some extravasation." And in the back of my mind, I always thought, like, "Well, that just means the scan's going to be pretty crappy." <laughs> um, but I think they do it for kind of like a CYA sort of thing where. They so that that you know to check that site before they get discharged, so that you know to tell them, hey, you know, put some cold compresses on here just to make sure that you're kind of decreasing all the inflammation that can happen there. And historically, it used to kind of be a probably a, a 
at least a topic of litigation where if they put a bunch of contrast into their forearm and they get discharged and like, oh, by the way, Mike, I can't feel the pulse in my hand anymore, then that used to be something that was a little bit more important. But nowadays, it's, the risk is pretty minimal. So what is the risk, Garrett, when we talk about that? <laughs> yeah. The risk of extravasation in specific sites really is just local tissue damage and, and irritation. It's, 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 there's going to be pain at the injection site. There's going to be swelling. And really, it's just supportive care to, to decrease it. You know, NSAIDs for pain, topical um, warm compresses to help with the swelling, um, and just kind of washing and waiting. And obviously, telling patients that, you know, hey, you had an extravasation in this location. If you develop severe pain in the site or if you develop, you know, you just get some numbness in your hands or something distal to the site where you would be concerned about a compartment syndrome, make sure you come back. But explain to patients that, you know, this did happen, but the risk of anything really clinically meaningful happen is is pretty negligible. So if I'm like a, I'm an accountant for a living, but I am really good at Google doctoring and I looked it up on the internet and I really couldn't find any kind of numbers. Can you tell me a number like as a patient, since I'm, I'm going to be an annoying patient with Google. So what's like the percentage risk that this might happen to me? Yeah, so this segues pretty well into the discussion about, you know, how often does this actually happen, extravasation in different spots and different IV sites and how big your catheter needs to be. And um, a lot of this data is, all of this stuff is kind of put into the ACR guidelines on contrast media usage and the safe usage of contrast media. Um, and a lot of the data is pulled from a single study that was made. It's a um, prospective study from back in 2010 where they were studying different IV sizes in different locations and then using power injectors at different rates of speed. So from like 1 to 2.9 cc's per second up to about greater than 5 cc's per second at different sites. And generally, the rate of extravasation is very low in and of itself. Um, as you get more distal and the size of the IV gets smaller, it gets higher. But I mean, generally, all of the rates are less than three percent of extravasation. And all comers, all comers, yeah. all of them are less than three point or less than three percent. And then the the most highly touted, um, most common place to have extravasation, you know, the big or the small IVs, the twenty two gauge or smaller in the hand. The rates even there are 2.2% that were cited in the study. So the, the rates of extravasation in and of itself is very low to begin with. I got to tell you, Garrett, you're, you're kind of losing me a little bit uh, as far as my interest in um, being concerned about this, right? Because first of all, <laughs> when you say that the treatment is cold, you know, when you say the treatment is cold compresses, like I instantly am a lot less concerned, right? Like, okay, put put like an ice pack on it. She so loves hot compresses. The big thing before we, <laughs> yeah, cold compresses, hot compresses, it doesn't really matter, right? You know, but really, secondly, the thing that that kind of concerns me about this, like, I I like to think of emergency medicine as really what we do all day is balancing risk, you know, and we rarely discharge a patient with a 0% risk of something, right? And our really our acceptable rate of risk that everything else is set on the PERC rule, the heart score, or all these other validated things is 2%. And you're telling me that the highest risk IV is slightly above our established acceptable risk in emergency medicine. And so like, it, you, you know, first of all, a, a seemingly pretty benign thing. Second of all, a pretty low incidence of occurring makes me kind of not that terribly concerned. Am I wrong on that, Garrett? No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, 
again, I think this is this is the one study that was kind of mentioned to me or referenced to me by uh, radiologists at my institution that said, hey, you're researching this topic. This is the study to know. So there might be more data and it, it's not there's not a lot of data to to really back up any of this stuff, admittedly. But this is kind of like the one highly touted study that they use that to back up their ACR guidelines. So I think this is the one to know. So 2.2% is probably the, the most important number to remember. But generally, you can reasonably estimate that a lot of them, a lot of the extravasation rates are probably around the same. And this study was done 10 years ago. I don't know too much. I'm not too keen on the um, technology advancements in IV catheters and whatnot, but I would presume that over 10 years, we've gotten better at doing this stuff. So you might even reasonably surmise that the rates are even lower than that. Especially with ultrasound guided IVs, correct? Yes. And and those are longer catheters. They tend to be safer and more stable for long-term use. Um, so yeah, I mean, when you can literally see the, the catheter go deep into that vein, you know, it's really well seated in that vein, then you're pretty confident that your extravasation rates could be low from that. Well, and catheter. I think this is one of those things that we see, you know, the whole like levofed peripheral levofed or peripheral pressors argument, you know, had the same sort of underlying, uh, theme, right. That, you know, 10 or 15 years ago that, you know, there was, reports of necrosis from 10 or 15 years before. And so we're carrying things over from 20 years ago at this point, maybe even more. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be a theme on our podcast. Right. So I think, and I remember, you know, when we had talked about this initially, you had given us some guidelines for, Hey, this is probably a good cutoff for a gauge of IV for contrast. What, what, for our listeners, like what's the smallest IV you can, can CT through and where's like the farthest place from the spot of interest that you can CT through. So I think generally the the best and to, to kind of coincide best with our radiology consultants is to to try to coincide with their um, guidelines as best we can at a baseline. So getting a twenty gauge or higher IV in the AC or above is probably the gold standard, and that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're struggling to do that, that like you just kind of like okay, well we can't do it, so I guess we can't get this study. That's not the point, but um, we should be trying to do what's best for our patients and that might be coinciding best with what their ACR guidelines are. Um, so generally what's recommended is 20 gauge or higher in the AC or above. And, uh, but I think it's also important to know that when that doesn't work. So if the first step in your IV algorithm is, is pray that the nurses can get it. And then the second step is do your best with an ultrasound guided IV, at least in my mind. And then the next steps would be either a peripheral IJ or the EJ. Um, you need to know that your consultants, specifically radiology, will be accepting of that. So if you can't get your 20 gauge in the AC or higher, then knowing what your next step is is important. But I think generally that's what we should be going for. Yeah, and the, the data that you had sent us, Garrett, I remember that that 20 gauge, you can even place that in the hand. This The timing and the the risk of contrast extravasation approaches, you know, say, that higher end of two to three percent when you go further away from the AC fossa, just from the size of the veins. Is that you sent us a couple articles and we, we had talked about that? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And again, the the the, the radiologist who sent this to me touted that when you take a, uh, an IV from the AC down to the hand, you double the rate of extravasation. But we're talking about doubling. 0.8% to 1.8%. So you're doubling a tiny number to uh, a small number, but still it, it's, it's obvious, it's statistically significant doubling, but it's not 
you're still below that 2% that we discussed before, where I still think if this is the only IV you have and you have a crashing patient and you would like to get this scan, and I think you should be reasonably expected to not have much pushback when you're discussing and say, hey, I'd really need this study. And like, okay, we'll give it a try, knowing that that rate of extravasation is pretty, pretty low. And what's the whole thing with this EJ, no CTs with EJ thing? I mean, that's something that I think you and you and I have experienced many, many times. And it was really hard to find kind of why they don't want us to do it, um, except for the reasons you have sort of posited before. But in the literature, there's not a lot of research about it, right? Is that right? There's, yeah, there's very little, if any. Um, What I could find are several case reports where there's one in particular where they they put a, um, a central line into an EJ, and I'm, I'm not sure why they put that in in particular. But Trying they, new stuff. <laughs> yes, <laughs> innovating. Yeah. Um, but what ended up happening is the, the tip of the catheter ended up getting into the mediastinum somehow, and when they pushed the bolus, obviously it went through the mediastinum, which was obviously catastrophic, but that's like the worst-case scenario to use for an EJ. And there was another study from, I believe it was from Israel or India. I can't remember which country, two very similar countries, obviously. Um, but they put in, uh, it was a single case report study of a single patient where they put an uh, EJ catheter in and there was extravasation. Um, they were noted, it was about 100 cc's of fluid that was in the neck, the lateral neck compartment outside of the EJ. And they had a plastic surgery consult come and see the patient. They had frequent reevaluations and followed up on the patient after they were discharged. And there was no clinically meaningful badness that occurred with this extravasation. And there's really just a dearth of evidence to say that this is a bad thing. But the general consensus that I could get when talking to different radiologists at my institution is that it's in the neck. It's risky if you're going to put 50 to 100 cc's of contrast material into the neck and nobody wants to do it. And that's the general consensus is that they're not really pulling from a data pool to say, you all know, X percent of people develop compartment syndrome in X amount of years. It's more of this is a risky place to have a lot of fluid and and we don't want to be the ones to push all that fluid in. Right. First of all. I just have to comment again on the statistical wizardry that everybody does. This, like, oh, it doubles the risk. You know, it goes from 0.2% to 0.4%. Like, that doubles the risk. And I still don't care about it, right? Like, I mean, come on, man. Like, that's not, that's not good science, first of all. And second of all, like you say, it's risky. I, I agree the neck is like a scary place uh, and, and a place that I don't want bad things going on. But like, is it that risky though? You know, like if you can't find any cases of badness happening is it, it, I don't know that it's that risky. And then third of all, it probably was risky when they're hyperosmolar contrast, but I'm thinking about getting a tattoo on my neck that says hyperosmolar <laughs> contrast is no longer an emergency medicine. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we're talking about it over and over again, you know, but like, maybe it's not that big a deal. Let's stop talking about it. You know? Well, I think, I think it really underscores the point that like more research should be done on this EJ location for uh, contrasted CTs because now with, you know, modern IV catheters and lower osmolar contrast, I, I think the risk is probably lower. And for, for what we could find, it seems that this is in the realm of a few case reports. But I also found it very interesting that if you're a resident and you do something wrong, you have to do an M&M. But if you're a staff, you just write a case report and get a PubMed ID. So that's kind of interesting. So uh, I would never want to put out what I did wrong for everyone else to read about. Right. But uh, but I understand their point. So it's only like two or three case reports. Um, I think it definitely begs to have some research done on it. This episode is sponsored by Morning Report Pro. 
If you use morning report style cases in your graduate medical education program, you need to give MR Pro a try. MR Pro is an integrated web-based software that works on phones, desktops, and tablets. MR Pro allows you to create and share cases with interactive vital signs and interactive images with all participants around the table. MR Pro works just as well for morning report in person or on Zoom-based conferences. The MR Pro software was designed by experienced faculty at one of America's oldest emergency medicine residency programs and is specifically designed to mirror the American Board of Emergency Medicine oral board exam format and is the best way to prepare your trainees for the oral exam. Head on over to mrpro.app, that's mrpro.app, to try it out for free for limited users or for larger groups. Enter the code, is that a thing? All one word without the question mark and get 25% off. Um, but, you know, it also brings up an interesting question. What about these these sort of peripheral uh, IJs placed with an ultrasound? I mean, is there any data out on that, or is that sort of a new horizon as well? Um, from the data I can see on this, it's it's been a pretty common practice in most, not, I wouldn't say most institutions, but in several institutions have adopted this as kind of like the last resort in their difficult IV algorithm. And it's it's been shown to be very safe, very effective, and it can last basically an entire a patient's entire hospital stay. The purpose of these IVs is not meant to be like this is going to be your IV in the hospital. It's meant to be like this is a sick patient who is maybe fluid down or hypotensive, and we need to get access now. And I mean, every time you look with an ultrasound, it's just this giant target, and it's just like oh, it's juicy. So it's easy to put in. It's been shown that it takes approximately at most five minutes to put in for most people on average, their rates of infection are super low. Rates of thrombosis are super low. So it's, it's been shown to be a generally safe thing at a baseline. And as you can imagine, pushing five cc's per second of contrast through a power injector into the IJ isn't going to be an issue because it's such a large bore vein that the rate of extravasation from that, even from, so the catheter itself, there's no really not a lot of distance to go between the, the skin and the IV. So there's not a lot of IV in the subcutaneous tissue. And then there's a lot of bore of the catheter, or there's a lot of the catheter in the actual vein itself. So the rate of extravasation, I would imagine, is probably clinically meaningless in that, in that um, location. But I don't know about the data for it yet. But I would imagine that it's very safe. Yeah. And, and, it, and interestingly, uh, use of central lines for CAT scanning, did you look up anything regarding that? Did you find any data on that? Uh, my understanding is that as long as, there's, as long as you're using a power injector safe catheter, so most of the triple lumens that we use nowadays, you'll look at the ports and it, one of them will say like safe for power injecting use. And those are, um, those are approved for five cc's per second or greater um, power injector contrast pushes so and that's where most of our ct angiographies are going to be so as long as and i'm assuming most institutions are using our these catheters that are power injector safe everywhere i've gone have had that one port that says it's power injector safe so most of them are and then the um so that's on the triple lumen which obviously the are the bores of the um catheters are much smaller so on the um cortices and things that we use for um more like trauma patients and more that we need a larger bore catheter in that you're not going to have any issues power injecting through that. Yeah. An interesting thing I found too, there's a review that was done actually in the UK, uh, looking at use of central lines for CT. And one of the interesting things I found there was that, and we don't really think of this, I, I, you know, we know that when we look at a 
patient who has a port, you know, it says CT usually in a radio opaque fashion on the, on the port that you can see on a chest x-ray. But one of the things that, you know, I didn't consider as much until very recently is using these ports over and over again for CT actually can break down the, uh, the tubing in the port and you can actually cause failure of the port itself if it's, even though it's designed for power injection. So I think we do have to think about that. Like when we want to CT through a port that's been, person's been CT'd a bunch of times, um, you know, I think that's something we have to consider is the equipment could fail, uh, although it is rare. Um, and another thing to think about too is uh, using central lines when you inject a contrast bolus as a patient's uh, ejection fraction um, and the fact that, you know, the line and the principles, the physics of the line itself, you know, where it is, that it may be harder to time a study, just like we said before, you know, timing a, a CT angiogram of the neck, uh, it can be a lot more complicated than a CTPE, although the CTPE is actually probably still fairly difficult um, with a longer line and a further distance away from the heart. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. And I think one of the other things that, that um, we're kind of dancing around, but, but certainly plays a factor here is, you know, uh, the CT techs have a very difficult um, job um, to try to time all these studies. And I, I think that maybe the manuals, I don't know a lot about it to, to be honest with you, but looking at, at, at the research for this podcast, the, the timing, the manuals and the timing probably just hasn't caught up to where we're putting all these lines. You know, you roll a, a really sick patient back to the CT tech and they, you, they see an IV going in the neck, but they don't know if it's in the EJ or the IJ and they don't know how to time this study. So then the study is poorly timed because their manual hasn't really caught up to it, you know? Um, and, and that is not a knock on, on um, the radiology text because that's an incredibly difficult job. But I just think that maybe our, we're kind of outpacing the manuals and guidance for how to time that bolus. Is that, is that something you guys think is true? Probably that is partially the case. Uh, I think with the emergence of ultrasound guided IVs, I think that that is probably going to be true. I also think with the increase in use of CAT scanning over the past 10 years, that we haven't seen many adverse events, at least not those that are published. I'm sure we could find some in the sort of annals of hospital morbidity and mortality, but uh, you know, we haven't, we weren't able to find a lot of data on that. And so I think that, you know, this sort of needs to be revisited. So, and I think that brings us around to our sort of, you know, is that a thing, right? So, so Garrett, tell us, what do you think about con the risk of contrast extravasation with uh, standard IV placement? Is that a thing or are there caveats to that? I would say that it, it's a thing in that it's, it's still kind of a guideline for most of our consultants. And until this is managed at, mostly an institutional based level. So like, as we discuss with our radiologists and try to hash this stuff out at an institution based level, we probably still should try to maintain this degree of, of certainty or alignment with their guidelines as much as possible. That being said, there is the obvious caveat to that, which is that the risks of not following their specific guidelines, as we've discussed before is, is not one clinically meaningful. And then two might not be, clinically feasible, depending on the type of patient that we're working with. So if you're unable to get anything above the hand or anything larger than a 22 gauge and you need this study, then I think having that discussion with the either CT techs or even the radiologist, if you need to elevate it to that level and say, that I, I accept that the risk of maybe this might not be the best time study, but I'm really worried about this patient and I would like this study, then 
I think we know enough evidence to suggest that this is probably a safe route and then the rate of extravasation, even if it does happen, that's something we can deal with. So I think to the best of our ability, we should we should try to stay in line with what they're recommending, but also knowing that we have the freedom to deviate from that if we need to. So I'll give you a scenario. So I have a you know 60-year-old hypertensive gentleman in the 200s. I think he probably has a, a aortic dissection. I can only get an IV in the hand. It's like a 21 in the hand. And then in the other room, I have you know an 18-year-old female with five hours of abdominal pain. Same scenario, can only get an 18 in the hand. So which one is it a thing for, or does it apply to all patients, or should we cater to what the risk of the disease is? I think we should definitely cater exactly to what the risk of the, the patient is and the risk of morbidity and mortality is. If, if you have a patient where you're, you're like, oh, they might have appendicitis or they might just have you know functional abdominal pain or gastritis, but you know they're saying it's in the right lower quadrant, so i got to get this scan. You know, I'm not too worried about that patient. But if it's someone who you're like, I have a high pretest probability of badness in this patient and I need to know what is going on with this person. And there's somebody on the other end of the line giving you pushback. I, I think this is, this is the ammo that we need to say, you know, I, I really need to study the rates of extravasation are clinically in my mind meaningless. And I need, as opposed to missing this potentially deadly diagnosis and I want this scan. And I think we have enough data to say that we can, we can push that envelope. Okay. And as far as EJs go, it sounds like what, from what you're saying, we just need a little more data, but they're probably safe uh, with the equipment that we have and if the way they're placed is placed correctly. Is that true? I would say that we have almost no data to say that it is an unsafe thing. I think there's room, there's work to be done to, to, to bring everybody onto our side and say that it is in a, we can Put head-to-head, you know, AC lines above um, 20 gauge or higher above the AC versus EJ versus peripheral IJs. You know, we've there's a lot of space to kind of work with and get more data for this. But I, as far as I'm aware, there's nothing to suggest. A, a few from very scarce case reports that it is an unsafe thing. So I see no reason why we can't continue to do that. But again, that's a discussion that we all need to have at our individual base levels to come up with algorithms and guidelines with our own radiology departments to to figure that out. Yeah, more reason to get involved, know the evidence, and work alongside of your colleagues, not against your colleagues. And that's kind of the point of this podcast is to bring us all up to date and make us all better doctors, right? Yeah, I I would agree uh, with with Garrett's conclusions. Um, I think it's important to note that for venous time studies like a CT abdomen pelvis, it probably isn't a thing. And you can probably scan through any line based off the research that Garrett has presented for us. Um, I think for, like Garrett said, for time studies that we probably should try to get it above the AC if possible. However, if we have a high pretest probability of severe disease, then I, I, I feel no reason um, uh, to, to hold off on those scans. And then high contrast or high osmolar contrast, still not a thing. We're still okay to do it in the neck. Uh, all the more reason to believe it, man. So thank you for the evidence. It's uh, uh, very helpful. Very helpful. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Of course.